0: Lights Out, everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out podcast. I'm your host, Josh, joined in the studio today by my co-host, Austin. Hey, what up? What is up, man? Today, we are diving into uh, a rather obscure story many of you probably have never heard of. This group of young men were known as the Carney Cult because they work for a carnival. And they were, of course, wrapped up in some devil-worshiping Satanist activity. And let's just say things do not end well for them. But before we get into today's episode, I did want to remind everybody that merch is back on the site. We had to take it down for a little bit. We moved warehouses, but our merch is back available at malharmerch.com and actually have a few new designs launching on January 27th is when they'll go live. A few new items and then I'll be working on a whole new collection which I'm really excited about here in the next couple of months. But yeah, it's just a great way to support the show plus you obviously get some sweet merch in return. And if you aren't able to get merch, a great way to support the show that is absolutely free is just making sure that you're subscribed on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. It does really help us out. And yeah, it takes you less than two seconds to do it. So if you're not subscribed already or following us on Spotify, go take a look right now before you continue with this episode. Take a second and it does really help us out. But yeah, today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh and I'm just gonna jump right into today's episode. Let's begin talking about the Carney cult. So by 1991, the satanic panic was in every town across the United States, even in the small farming community of Johnson, Indiana. The police in the county noticed graffiti and vandalism had spiked in the area, and the tag COS was constantly spray painted on brick walls next to inverted pentagrams. And they soon learned that COS stood for none other than the Church of Satan. And at first, local police thought the vandalism wasn't a big deal, You know, they just thought it was teenagers being teenagers. The culture of wearing black clothes, listening to metal, and obsessing over Satan had become more popular in Johnson, Indiana. And it was a way for teens to rebel against the status quo. Some parents thought that their teenagers were just going through a phase. But some of the more concerned parents feared that their children were headed down a dark pathway. Which, I can kind of relate to this because... I never was dabbling in Satanism but there was a time in my life when I was a teenager where I became very rebellious I as many of you know I've grew up in a very conservative Christian home and by the time I was like 16 17 years old I kind of flipped on that I was I stopped subscribing to Christianity and my parents still forced me to go to church so in a uh, rebellious fashion I started just wearing and and at the time I was listening to like death metal like some of the most brutal sounding i mean we're talking pig squealing just like brutality um bands like you know lorna shore to as the blood runs black or um infant annihilator like yeah, very uh, cattle decapitation style. i mean just yeah. like most brutal shit. And, it, and a lot of it was because i was angry and rebellious and so listening to that music just feels that right? right it's it's amazing how music is able to feel your feelings and your emotions yeah it's a good outlet too you know people yeah. like to demonize
1: music but it's a good outlet especially at that time i went through similar like i was you know catholic yeah. school yeah. 17 years old i was like i've had enough of this yeah i didn't get into that hardcore metal but i did get it i was into like tool oh I yeah was like yeah or like,
0: system of a down yeah, and like some of those that, other guys yeah. yeah you know i i get the whole You want to rebel against the status quo especially when you're being forced to do something that you don't want to do that's kind of a normal thing for for teenagers to go through you're trying to find your identity and for the longest time your parents and those around you sort of form that for you in a way and so the idea that you know just because you listen to death metal or you wear black all the time or something like that doesn't you know people judge you for that and just automatically say oh you're you know you're a bad kid or you're getting into trouble or something like that and obviously when you take a step further and you start becoming obsessed with satan that's a that's a whole other thing but for the young teenagers in johnson indiana there was a few that would sort of take this obsession to the next level and that would be by becoming obsessed with satanism but obviously as we've learned many times throughout episodes of lights out just because you're satanist doesn't mean really anything That's just your ideals, your beliefs. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you act out and do evil acts. But during the satanic panic, fears were absolutely overblown. But they would soon become a reality, especially when it mixed with the seedy underground of a few carnival workers just a few years later. In the mid-1980s in Johnson, Indiana, a kid named Mark Goodwin was given a simple middle school assignment. His teacher told the class, to write about the meaning of Halloween. For most, this was a pretty innocent assignment. I mean, most kids were thinking about candy, costumes, and trick-or-treating. But Mark had other ideas. Halloween was a little different for him. After school, he headed to a local library and checked out a few books on Satanism to prep for his writing assignment. Not long after, his teachers caught him sketching inverted crosses into his notebooks.
1: I always curious about this. This symbol obviously comes up in a lot of satanic yeah. uh, rituals and, and right. things, but I've actually never looked into the history of the symbol of an inverted cross. Yeah, so please
0: enlighten us on it, because I think there is a lot of misconstrued opinions and ideas around it.
1: Yeah, and it's used by a lot of different people, so it heavily relies on context, but it's a pretty common symbol, especially Satanism or demons.
0: Like in horror movies,
1: you always yeah, see, you I'm know. I was thinking, you know, the Conjuring movie where yeah. the crosses all turn upside down. Yeah, exactly. So When the
0: poltergeist starts yeah, romping around, exactly. the crosses mm-hmm. go upside down, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I always wondered why exactly, though. And I don't know, from what I could find, it's funny because um, there's something called a Leviathan cross, which is actually, that's more what Anton LaVey put forward for, for his thing. That's a bit different than an inverted cross because the Leviathan cross was... It's like a double cross, double teed, and it has an infinity sign at the bottom. Right,
0: yeah, I've seen that before, yeah.
1: And then another symbol they adopted was the inverted cross or the upside down cross. In some traditions, though, the act of inverting something is important. So it's basically, it's simple as it sounds, you just, it means the opposite of whatever. That's that's kind of
0: how I've always understood it is it's like, it's like defiling Christianity by flipping it upside down. You know, Jesus was crucified on the cross you know upright like this so if you flip it upside down it's like yeah it's the opposite be, of jesus right right yeah. Right. so they even went back with the research i
1: was looking at uh water is sometimes depicted as a triangle with a vertex pointing up uh which is roughly based on the shape of its molecule you know one, yeah. one oxygen two hydrogen and then the opposite of water is fire so that's an upside down triangle which also comes into play because the pentagram is usually a big symbol in St. Right. Which right. can be the elements and stuff like
0: that, which there's elements to the pentagram yep. that are different per cause like the pentagram just by itself is, is a Wiccan symbol, right? It's exactly, not even yeah. a satanic symbol, but yep. then if you know, there's different ways that it's drawn and, and you know, flipped upside down the pentagram. Like I think it's flipped upside down. It becomes a satanic symbol, Yeah, but just a lot of people confuse, you know, people see a pentagram and they, they freak out because they don't understand, you yeah. know, the symbolism and don't realize that it's just a wiccan symbol.
1: Yep. Um and and an inverted cross also a wiccan symbol. They actually see it instead of like satanism, they see it as a complementary symbol to to Jesus as far as I understand. The same way you can look at a yin and yang symbol, yeah. the one, you know, one side of it's upside down, so it's just more complementary. And then funny enough, some Christians still see it as the cross of Peter because St. Peter was a martyr and he was crucified upside down, so.
0: Oh, really? Oh, he was, upside. that's right, yeah, Peter so, was crucified upside down.
1: Yep, yeah, so it kind of depends on the context, but in this context, inverted uh, crucifix
0: is obviously just meant to mean Satan, right. demons. The defilement of, yeah. of God, yeah. So along with inverted crosses, Mark also began wearing black clothes and distancing himself from regular social groups. Satanism intrigued him so much that by high school, it inspired him to start his own satanic cult. He decided to name this group Satan's Disciples. Such an original name. (laughs) At first, he handpicked a total of six members, and many were his close friends. To join the cult, the only real requirement was pledging their loyalty to Satan. In the beginning, the group was harmless. It was pretty relaxed and mostly just an excuse to hang out with like-minded friends They'd get together and read passages from the Satanic Bible written by Anton LaVey. And some nights, they would wander around local cemeteries. They walked between headstones and thought about ways they could prove their loyalty to Satan. After a while, their harmless gatherings began to change. They really started digging into texts and rituals outside the Church of Satan. And most of the members first joined the group to rebel and go against the norm. They drank alcohol and smoked weed together, but Mark wanted something more out of the group. These gatherings soon became his biggest priority in life. It became his only passion in his spare time, and to him, this wasn't just a way to hang out with his friends. After all, he didn't even drink or smoke when he gathered with Satan's disciples. He was almost always sober during their meetings. And he took it so seriously that he wore a dark black robe every time they met. And these meetings were just social hangouts for Mark. He eventually decided that his group needed to be more serious about their pledge to Satan. So he believed the next level of dedication was animal sacrifice. So they started catching and killing small vermin during their ceremonies. He then took it a step further, and he began killing cats and drained their blood into a goblet before drinking it. He told the rest of the group that this was a ritual to prove their commitment to the Dark Lord. He eventually convinced the other members to join in. And after Mark's speech on loyalty and dedication, they all passed around the goblet and drank animal's blood together. They would then get up and dance around a makeshift altar and act like the blood had possessed them with the spirit of Satan. They flailed their bodies around and screamed invocations to the Dark Lord. They also believed that this ritual was a way to summon demons. After this, Mark knew he had a strong influence on the group, so he started making the other males wear black robes to every meeting. The few women in the group weren't allowed to become official members, and they were required to wear black lingerie or be completely naked during their meetings. Soon, locals began to catch on to what the kids were doing. Eventually, there were rumors that they were participating in orgies late at night. Supposedly, the group brought in girls interested in their hangouts and invited them to cemeteries late at night. There, they would offer them drugs and alcohol and have sex with them on cemetery grounds. By this point in the cult, Mark Goodwin still had his limits. Satan's disciples killed animals, drank the blood, and had orgies in local cemeteries, but Mark realized He had to draw the line somewhere so one night one of the members suggested that they should kidnap and sacrifice a baby to satan when this was mentioned at the gathering mark realized that this wasn't a joke other members began seriously talking about how they would kidnap and kill an infant this was the moment mark realized that he needed to walk away from the cult that he had created so he disbanded satan's disciples and he left his friends behind But this didn't stop his interest in worshiping Satan. He just had to do it by himself or find new, like-minded Satanists. This is interesting to me that he didn't go further, because it makes me think that this was really just about having a group of friends and kind of being in control of his friends. And he got, obviously, some satisfaction about leading this group of of disciples that he had and making them all wear black robes. And, And once it kind of turned from this innocent fun group he decided you know uh screw this so he's he's kind of smart in that sense that he's like i'm not going to take this to the next step and who knows how serious they really were about kidnapping a a baby i mean that's pretty serious like yeah that was obviously not going to end well for any of them so i wonder why he didn't go further with it you know i wonder if he maybe had a
1: since he was the leader of the group maybe he got offended that it wasn't his idea Something
0: as petty as that. Like uh, that's a good better. point. Yeah. He kind of wanted to be the mastermind, you know? Yeah. It's almost like he wanted to be Anton LaVey. In yeah. A way. Like he's clearly very inspired by Anton LaVey and kind of liked how he did everything. Cause I mean, a lot of the things that they did is very similar to what um, the types of rituals and sex orgies that happen in the church of Satan. So it seems like he was just trying to replicate what Anton LaVey did. And so once it kind of went beyond that, it was going to go, this next level of evil. He was like, ah, even though that kind of fits in with everything, I'm not ready, ready to make that drastic of a move. Exactly. So now that he wasn't a member of the old group, he decided to perform his satanic rituals on his own for a while. And he ended up doing this until he turned 18. After high school, he picked up a job at a local fast food place. And this is where he met two brothers named Keith and David Lawrence. Keith was 18 and David was 21. It wasn't long before Mark and Keith realized that they had some similar interests. They were both interested in Satanism and Satanic rituals. Mark also noticed that even though Keith was the younger Lawrence brother, he acted like an older brother to David. David was quieter and Keith was more vocal and controlling. Keith made the rules and David just followed along. Keith had been bullied in school since he was young and in seventh grade, his teachers recommended counseling. Instead of counseling, his parents ended up sending him to a boarding school, as they thought that this would help Keith, but this plan backfired. During his time at boarding school, Keith got really into Satanism, and like Mark, this became his only hobby. When he returned from boarding school, he introduced his older brother David to Satanism. David didn't care too much, he just did whatever his younger brother said. He also noticed that when Keith got back from boarding school, he was filled with hatred, and his whole personality had changed. He became more aggressive and talked about hating everyone and everything around him. Keith desperately wanted to get his older brother on board, but David saw how angry his brother had become over the years. One time after a heated argument, Keith even chased David around the house with a knife until he promised to pledge his loyalty to Satan. Eventually, David stopped resisting. He never fully committed, but he stopped turning down his brother and started going along with whatever he wanted to do. He didn't understand his brother's obsession with Satanism, but he still loved him. David even said he liked hanging out with his brother Keith because he was the only one in the family who gave him any respect. Later at the fast food place they worked at, they met Mark Goodwin, and over time, Mark and Keith formed a strong friendship. And David just tagged along in the background. Mark and Keith had the same interests in Satan, and they listened to the same metal music. They were obsessed with reading the liner notes of the albums they listened to, and they took all the lyrics literally. They were also obsessed with reading any books on Satan and Satanic rituals, It didn't matter who it was written by or what it said. If it was something to do with Satanism, they read it. But this obsession would soon go a step too far, as Mark and Keith ended up writing a contract with Satan. In the contract, they both agreed that they would dedicate the next 20 years of their lives to the Dark Lord. They also mentioned that after the 20 years were up, Satan could do whatever he wanted to them. He could enslave them, or kill them if he wanted. After the pledge... Mark and the Lawrence brothers left their jobs at the fast food place and joined a carnival that had rolled through town. The two Lawrence brothers had joined a carnival in the Bahamas before working at this fast food restaurant, so they were familiar with the Carney culture. For Mark, though, this was a totally new experience. Through the years, carnivals and carnival workers have gotten a certain type of reputation. Today, carnivals are more rare to come by, but back in the 90s, plenty of traveling carnivals could be found all across the United States They usually had amusement rides, food vendors, merch, games like ring toss or air rifle targets, thrill acts, and animal acts. Many believe the concept of a carnival dates all the way back to early pagan festivals, like the Krampus festivals that are still popular in Germany, which celebrates an evil version of Santa Claus. Definitely gotta do an episode on Krampus this year. Later on, Italian Catholics picked up similar traditions. The word carnival originally meant time of merrymaking before Lent which is the Christian time for fasting and giving up something for 40 days. But the first big one to start off the modern carnival dates back to 1893, with the Chicago World's Fair. Back then they had burlesque shows, boxing matches, and freak shows which were popular. Over time, freak shows died out for a handful of different reasons. People obviously began seeing these shows as a way to exploit people with deformities or disabilities. Burlesque shows and boxing matches also died out because carnivals wanted to become more kid-friendly. A lot of animal acts were also shut down because of poor treatment of the animals. And many visitors caught on to the con artistry of the games that were nearly impossible to win. By the 90s, carnivals and fairs were found mostly in rural regions in North America. By then, carnival workers had gotten a reputation and they had developed their own subculture through the decades. And Mark was about to experience the culture firsthand. So I kind of want to
1: dive into Carney culture because I think it'll set the scene for what these guys were about and kind of the, the culture that they were into. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The only thing I know about Carney culture is from American horror story. Yeah. Freak show, I was that Which like is the, my favorite season. That was the, like the third one or fourth one. Yeah, or yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the earlier seasons. Yeah. I really enjoyed that season of it because I think it, I think it does depict a pretty accurate, just how crazy it was. You know, it's like, yeah. Obviously you've got all these people who maybe call themselves misfits or come in there to try to make money, you know, off of their, their deformities or disabilities. But then there's this whole crime element to it and, you know, a lot of just crazy shit going on. Have you ever seen
1: Nightmare Alley?
0: No, I haven't. It's a good movie about old, old fashioned carnival. Oh really? Yeah.
1: That was a good one. Carnivals back then, especially they were, you know, known for their freaks, which is totally outdated today. In a way, it still lives on. I mean, back then it was the bearded lady, the armless woman who could type with their toes, the elastic skin man, all these people with these strange, you know, things. They look different than, than everyone else. Yeah. Unique
0: Um, abilities. A lot of them have.
1: Yeah. That was like why they were attracted to this because back then they kind of realized we can either be looked at strangely because people don't accept us on the street or we can make money off of this. Yeah. So I actually didn't know there's a term for it. Um, it's called exploitive elevation, oh, which is oh. kind of an interesting thing I read into. Yeah, it was a way where it was like, they realized they were being exploited for their deformities or, or what was, abilities? Yeah. Just yeah, the unique that,
0: things they could do or, yeah. yeah.
1: So they knew people were looking at them because they were strange, but in a way they almost enjoyed it and they found a community there
0: which um, makes a lot of sense i mean they're surrounded by others you know rather than being isolated in society they're kind of with their brothers and sisters in a way who are exactly. all similar and and obviously by making money off of it and there is some ele- i guess the elevation part is that they you know, made a it living elevates their life yeah
1: and uh even beyond just the freak show i think that culture spread into the rest of carnies right it was a way you know they got a reputation for being quote, throwaways by society, but they realize like, Hey, we're all weird. So we can all hang out together here. And it's kind of a safe space for people with, uh, different opinions or who would normally be kind of outcast right, by, right. by society. The problem, I guess we see here is what happens is that since it's a safe place for outsiders, sometimes it's not the best outsiders that Yeah. yeah. So the same ideas of being this subculture and tight knit outcast is also fundamentally almost the same as what a cult is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That in a way you could say these carnival groups were a cult in a sense. Like. Yeah. A lot of times, (laughs) at least in the show, you know, there's kind of like the ringleader, the one that's kind of in charge, and in the show, you know, it's somebody. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it's like there is somebody benefiting at the top. Yeah. And everybody's kind of working for that person, right? Um, yeah, so it's giving up control in, in a lot of aspects. So, yeah, you can draw a lot of parallels between carny culture and religious yeah, uh, structure.
1: Yeah. But yeah, they even have their own language, which I found out, which oh, is I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah, it was it's kind of died out today, but it was used as uh which is classic for like cults or subcultures. It's like an in-group, out-group, right? Yeah. It was meant to confuse people. So some of the words I found it was they're actually pretty funny. Um, so it's called the Carney Cant, and one of them was cake cutting, which means to shortchange someone. Going south means to steal money. A gazuni is a new guy who won't make it in the Carney world. Oh wow! So they even had it's kind of like someone who's not dedicated to the face, like oh he'll never make it here. yeah you know, they had a term for that a mark is a local townsperson they can pick out to be a victim a join means to fix a game so no one will win a jump is when the carnival packs up and moves to a new spot there's a ton of more words if you want to look them up you can find yeah them. it's actually kind of interesting but that's essentially having that language was to make it in group out group
0: right which right. is kind of a
1: foundation of subcultures or cults you know
0: Yeah. And just the, like, if you look at the way that they operate and obviously it's not like they have like, there's an LLC and there's their employees of this, you know, it's very much like all under the table type of thing. And, and then just the, you know, for the longest time of figuring out ways to bring, bring the guests in, but then take as much of their money as possible by sort of rigging everything to, you know, in their favor while also sort of putting on a show kind of thing, yeah, the carnival culture, I'm trying to think of like, you know, I was born in the 90s, so I'm trying to think if I went to any like carnivals growing up. And I feel like I've I've been to like one or two carnivals. Like I kind of grew up in a, in a lot of rural places and I remember going to, you know, obviously the county fairs. I went to the county fair uh, a few times, which the, the fair is a little bit, more legit because it is, it's run by the county, right? And so, versus like just like a little just carnival that pops up. up, yeah, a stand up, like they just show up in the middle we're of here. the field yeah. and we're like, We're here, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I never even, you know, obviously I was too young to understand this, but I, I wonder what our parents think of like carnivals and stuff, or oh, if they sure. went to carnivals growing up that yeah. were just kind of these pop up, yeah, and things. it was
1: the same for me too. I went to the state fair, which was actually inside uh Detroit city limits, but yeah, not it wasn't much carny culture there it was more just like a city folk we were like here's a cow that's pregnant it's gonna give birth and we're all all right, city folk are right. like whoa this is crazy but it wasn't
0: too much it's not like they had a freak show or anything right like the, yeah the nothing the like county that. fair yeah yeah i don't think i've ever been to a carnival that had like a freak show or any of that you know those types of things but i see why it doesn't exist today yeah. obviously because it's exploitive and hopefully we're much more inclusive as a society now where exactly. you know we're not like seeing somebody with a disability and be like, oh, you're a freak and right, you know, we're yeah. you know, much more inclusive when it comes to those types of things. But I'm sure in some places of the world, at least, this this type of culture exists. And I mean, maybe even here in the United States, I'm curious if anybody out there has run across a, a carnival like this that has some of these things. Because I, I wonder if there's like laws against doing that. If, if a so carnival came into town and then was like, we have a freak show. Would that, you know, is there any laws that would, right, that would break? Yeah, like, I wonder, like, is there explo- I don't know. Hopefully, people would just be too yeah, disgusted. Hopefully, by people would idea. be like, run this out of town, yeah, like, get this, right. like, protested or something like yeah.
1: that. But, and it's kind of sad because at post COVID, carnivals really got hit hard.
0: So I don't even know how common they are anymore, really. Yeah. Yeah. Especially just crowds of people and yeah. things like that. And just, I mean, like, we've, we've covered in, You know our amusement park disaster episode like just the rides and things like that i think people are starting to get kind of smart too yeah what the hell like these rides show up on the back of trucks and then they're like setting them up and you're like and you know i've seen so many videos of some of these fairs or uh you know places like that where these rides get set up and they're like rocking back and forth as people are going up and around it like
1: they're like oh we can't we're not letting people on the ride there's uh too much wind today yeah like, really yeah, exactly. the integrity of this ride is it's going to be
0: taken out yeah. by some wind i know for me like especially now that i'm a parent like i'll I'll definitely take my children to that but i don't know if i'll let them ride the rides because yeah, yeah and also like the people that are operating these rides do they even know They don't, how these work they're they just pushing care. a button yeah so yeah i don't, I don't know i, I think Like, obviously, the county fair is fun because there's a lot of, you know, there's great food vendors and there's cool stuff to look at. But like, yeah, I don't trust those rides. Maybe that's the fun. Even the even like the amusement parks here, I don't even trust the rides. Oh, yeah, I (laughs) know. But maybe that's half the fun is the risk of death. Yeah, maybe it is. (laughs) So the carnival that Mark and the Lawrence brothers joined was one that traveled around Indiana. But this was its last stop before winter. It was the Decalb County Fall Free Fair which has operated for over 90 years. And Mark met a ton of new people through his new job. Normally in their small town in Indiana, their satanic views were seen as strange or violent. But here with the other carnies, they realized it wasn't that strange. Eventually, they all met another carny named Jimmy Pennick, who was also obsessed with Satan. The four of them went around the carnival and tried to spread the word. They hoped that they could find other people with similar interests. They also bonded with some of the other carnival workers by talking about all the crimes that they had committed over the years. Most of the crimes were petty like theft and vandalism, but after talking with the other carnies, Mark and David discovered that Jimmy had committed a serious crime earlier that year when he worked in a carnival in Ohio. Jimmy didn't want anyone to know about it, but word spread throughout the carnival. Only a few others found out about the story though. Apparently what happened was that on August 30th, 1991, just a few months before they joined the carnival, Jimmy had killed a young man named Andrew Wright. Andrew was also a fellow carny back in Ohio. Supposedly, Andrew had known about another crime Jimmy had committed before, so to keep him quiet, Jimmy murdered him. Jimmy slit the young man's throat and threw his body on the side of a turnpike. Only a few other carnival workers knew about the murder, and the rumors eventually spread through the Indiana carnival, and Mark and David listened to the story. But instead of being disgusted, they were intrigued. They almost respected Jimmy more because he had been involved in a murder. Eventually, word got around to a young man named William Anthony Alt, who went by the nickname Tony. Tony was 21 years old and also worked at the poor John Carnival in the fairgrounds. He was born July 2nd, 1970 in the small town of Rochester, Indiana. Early on, he was an outsider and he became interested in Satanism in high school but he wasn't as dedicated as Mark, Jimmy, and the Lawrence brothers. Tony had read about satanic rituals, but besides that, he hadn't been a part of any. He eventually met Mark in September of 1991 at the carnival, and he wanted to know more about Satanism, especially when he realized that Mark, Keith, David, and Jimmy were all into it. He found out through rumors that Mark had reignited his old cult, known as Satan's disciples, and Jimmy, Keith, and David were all members. After hearing about the rituals and sacrifices they did, Tony desperately wanted to be a part of their crew. He wanted to drink animal blood and dedicate his life to Satan just like them. But really, he just wanted a group of friends to hang out with. At first, none of them wanted Tony to be a part of their group. They all agreed that, you know, he's a nice guy. But they never explained exactly why they didn't want him in the group. But Tony kept on pushing. They would never let him in until one day Tony realized that he had one thing that would guarantee him entry into the cult. Through rumors, he had heard about the murder Jimmy had committed back in Ohio in August of that year, so he decided to use this as blackmail. Jimmy hadn't been caught yet, so Tony told them that if they didn't let him into the cult, he would tell the police. After the threat of blackmail, Jimmy told the rest of the guys that they should let Tony into the group. So they finally told Tony that they would initiate him during one of their ceremonies in the near future, this was a formal invitation to the group it would also be his first and last satanic ritual he was so excited to be invited that he didn't even second guess why they invited him in the first place on September 25th 1991 Mark approached his then girlfriend Brenda Ferguson he told her that they were going to initiate Tony into their cult and they needed her help they wanted her to find a secluded place where they could carry out a satanic ritual without anyone seeing Mark also mentioned that they wanted the location to be a good scene for a picture so they could document the moment Tony joined the group. The next day, the carnival packed up on its last day of operation that year. Later in the day, Brenda gave Mark, Keith, David, Jimmy, and Tony a ride out to a secluded barn out on Auburn Farms. After she dropped them off, Mark told her to come back in a few hours to pick them up, so she left with the van. At the barn, they piled up a bunch of dry wood and broken pieces of lumber, and they started a huge bonfire. As the fire grew, they decided to tear an old barn door off its rusty hinges. They then placed it on the ground near the fire and began using it as their makeshift altar. Then they pressured Tony to lie down on the altar and promised him that they would do a ritual with him. They told him that this was his initiation into the group. Tony was so desperate to become a part of this satanic cult that he did exactly what they told him to do. As he lay down on his back, the others surrounded him. They passed around a few strands of rope and tied each of his limbs to the door frame. When they were sure he couldn't get free, Jimmy pulled out a knife. As Jimmy brought the knife down toward him, Tony struggled to get himself free, but the bindings were too tight. And that's when Jimmy took the blade and began making small cuts along Tony's throat. And he made sure the wounds were shallow enough so he wouldn't kill Tony in the process. Jimmy then dragged the blade from Tony's throat down to his chest and stomach, all the way down to his groin. The wounds began to trickle out beads of blood. But since the wounds weren't very deep, Tony stayed conscious through the whole thing. When he realized he wouldn't die from the wounds, he tried to relax. He calmly told the guys that he wasn't comfortable with continuing the ritual, and he demanded that they untie him and let him up. But instead, they gagged him with a cloth so he couldn't make any more noise. They kept on performing the ritual, invoking Satan and chanting around the makeshift altar. Then they took the bloody knife and continued carving Tony's skin. They each began passing around the knife and carving satanic symbols and inverted crosses into his chest and stomach. By the end of the mutilation, Tony had several inverted crosses gouged into his skin. But this was only the beginning. They then took the knife and sawed off both of Tony's ears. The gag in his mouth muffled his screams as they did it, then Keith decided he wanted to try and remove Tony's heart from his chest while it was still beating. So he took the knife and began to carve open the skin on Tony's chest, but he soon realized that removing his heart would be incredibly difficult. He would have had to cut through a layer of skin and muscle, break through his rib cage, and sever all the arteries and veins before pulling the heart out. After cutting him open and digging into his chest, Keith eventually gave up. He realized it was going to be too hard. To reach tony's heart as tony lay down on the barn door with his chest flayed open jimmy leaned down to tony's ear and whispered are you ready to die and supposedly tony responded but jimmy has never revealed what response tony gave him jimmy then took the knife pressed it against tony's throat and ran a deep cut through the skin cutting open his jugular they then all watched as the life drained out of him and his dark blood coated the old barn door After Tony was dead, they sawed off his head with a knife and began dismembering parts of his body. They threw his head and hands into the nearby bonfire and they hoped that the bonfire would get rid of the body parts and cover up the evidence. But soon, Keith took the head out of the fire after it had been burned down to the charred bone. He told the others he would bury Tony's skull but would return for it later as he wanted to give the skull to someone as a gift. Then they burned the rest of the body parts but made sure to steal Tony's wallet, which had some money in it. Meanwhile, Brenda eventually returned to the barn with the van. She had no idea what they had just done, but she noticed that Tony wasn't with the group any longer, but she refused to ask any questions. Since they had some of Tony's cash, they all decided to go to the local Arby's to celebrate. After they shared one more meal together, Jimmy decided to flee to his parents' house in Shelbyville, Indiana, Mark and two of the Lawrence brothers decided to head to Florida and hopefully find some more work in another carnival. They all took Mark's van and headed south. During the trip, they ended up naming the van Rigor Mortis, which, if you don't know, is the stage of death when the limbs get stiff and the muscles harden. Eventually, the van ended up in Florida and they all found more work. But not long after, Mark suffered a strong feeling of guilt. By December, the whole state of Indiana knew about Tony's disappearance, Mark had once turned away from his friends in high school after they mentioned killing a baby, but now he had taken part in murder. Soon enough, his guilt would become too much, so he decided to call his dad, Keith Goodwin, back in Indiana and told him everything that had happened. On December 12, 1991, Keith called the police after talking with his son. He told them that Mark had witnessed a murder during a satanic ritual sacrifice. Mark was then arrested and brought back to Indiana, after Mark's arrest, police also picked up Mark's girlfriend, Brenda, so they could get her side of the story. And during the interview, she admitted that she had taken them to the barn and picked them up there, but she had no idea what had happened while she was gone. Brenda identified the barn where they performed the ritual, and when police searched the area, they found Tony's bones in the ashes of the bonfire. Meanwhile, Mark was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, although he only admitted to witnessing the murder and lightly participating. As for Jimmy, he was later arrested in Shelbyville, Indiana and charged with aggravated murder, and he quickly admitted to everything. In the meantime, the two Lawrence brothers had made it to the Bahamas and were working at a carnival, and they had no idea what was going on back in the States. But once they stepped foot back into Florida, customs agents noticed that warrants were out for their arrest, so they detained both Lawrence brothers. They were then transported back to Indiana, where they were charged with aiding in a murder, David Lawrence, the older brother, immediately pled guilty. Investigators noticed that he had some level of remorse. He also told police he hadn't committed the murder, and he didn't care about Satanism, and he blamed everything on his brother, Keith. He said he only went because his brother was into it, and he claimed he didn't even touch Tony during the ritual. His main excuse was that he was just following along. He also said that even if they were never caught, he planned on never speaking to his brother again. So in April of 1993, David's trial ended, and he was sentenced to eight years in prison. During the sentencing, the judge said that even though David was the older brother, he had been manipulated by his younger brother, Keith. And the judge also believed that David could be eventually rehabilitated. As for Keith, it was clear that he had actually participated in the ritual and had used a knife to mutilate Tony. Keith also had a long criminal history before the murder. He was initially charged with murder and faced 80 years in prison but the defense and prosecutor later came to an agreement keith's charges were dropped to conspiracy to commit murder so they could guarantee a conviction the defense's strategy was to deny keith's participation in satanism they argued that keith wasn't really a true satanist even though his charges and his trial were about conspiracy to commit murder this was the time of the satanic panic so their strategy was to try and convince the jury that keith wasn't really a satanist So he would look better in court the defense doubled down and tried to convince the court that keith studied all kinds of religions they claimed he also read the greek and hebrew bibles the quran and plenty of other religious texts his attorneys tried to make the trial about religion but the prosecution reminded the court that this was about a violent crime not keith's religious beliefs in the end the testimonies revealed that keith hadn't committed the fatal blow he hadn't slit tony's throat But he did help carve the inverted crosses into his chest and also try to remove Tony's heart. Keith was found guilty and the judge sentenced him to 30 years in prison and 20 years of probation. As for the other trials, the investigators, jury, and judge noticed that David and Mark seemed to be the only two filled with remorse. But many were skeptical. Some thought that they were genuinely sorry for what had happened, but others thought that this was just an act to appeal to the court. While Mark and David awaited trial and sentencing, they met with a chaplain every single day. They both prayed and tried to show that they had reconnected with Christianity. David even said that if he was sentenced to prison, Jesus would quote unquote freeze his soul because no man could lock that down. Later during his trial, David said that he regretted everything that had happened and was quoted saying that boy Tony had the right to live. During Mark's trial, he vocally apologized to Tony's mother, Shirley. He was the only one of the four that apologized for what had happened. He said, Mrs. Gibbons, I never really knew your son. Whatever I know, I do know. He is a good-hearted person. I am very ashamed of what I did to your son. But she rejected his apology, yelling back, You damn well should be. What chance does he have now? What am I supposed to feel? Sorry for you? You never should have done it. Many thought that Mark's apology was just an attempt to look good for the jury. And in the end, Mark was found guilty, but only sentenced to eight years in prison. As for Jimmy, it was determined that he was the one that made the fatal blow and actually killed Tony. And he was charged with murder and faced a death penalty in Indiana. He was also facing life in prison in Ohio for the murder of Andrew Wright. In order to avoid the death penalty in Indiana, he pled guilty to the murder in Ohio. During his trial, his defense admitted that Tony had only suffered some pain before his death. Jimmy ended up being sentenced to 60 years in Ohio and 20 years to life in Indiana. The judge said that this murder was one of the most heinous crimes ever committed in DeKalb County, Indiana. Mark and David both served out their sentences of eight years, and they are both free today. Keith only served 11 out of his 30-year sentence, and he was also set free in 2004, While in prison, he apparently took college courses and had good behavior during his incarceration. So when he was let go, he avoided any probation time. But his freedom didn't last long. In 2006, he was arrested again, this time for public intoxication, battery, and criminal confinement. He was then sentenced to 180 days and was released again. Mark and the Lawrence brothers are all free today. In hindsight, some still blame this crime on Satanism and the seedy criminal underground of culture, But others think the murder would have happened with or without the ritual. Many believe the ceremony was just an excuse to torture and murder Tony so he wouldn't tell the police about Jimmy's previous murder. But it backfired anyway, and Jimmy will most likely spend the rest of his life in prison where he belongs. Which, if they let that guy out, that that is crazy. I can't believe they let Keith out. Right. Like, I know. These what? dudes
1: all participated in this. Like, even if, I don't even know. What does
0: that teach them? And, and they come out of prison, they commit more criminal acts. I mean. Right. And I, I don't know, a
1: part of me thinks that even if you're
0: lightly participating
1: in something like this, something
0: is clearly wrong. Yeah, well, what kind of rehabilitation actually happened in prison? Right, To yeah. deal with the impulses of doing violent acts to another human being personally for me I feel that if you commit a violent act especially torture like this like there, like you just said there is something deeper you know there's a deeper level of dysfunction happening in your in your brain and just in your soul really I mean is that person ever really able to come back from that yeah like after you torture especially keith the fact that he flayed open like if you go that far i don't know that there is a way to come back from that
1: you're trying to dig out someone's heart from their chest yeah Yeah, like that's just i i'm a firm believer in rehabilitation i think i do think people can change i don't necessarily believe rehabilitation in the in the criminal justice system is well yeah there's what rehabilitation's happening they don't care at all
0: i mean if you look at the people who do claim to rehabilitate and especially in the american criminal justice system oftentimes it's linked to religion and it's linked to christianity and it's finding god and you know god is the reason they turn their life around which is great you know it's great that some people are able to do that but when you look at everything else about prison and where they are and what they're surrounded with nothing tells me that there's any rehabilitation going on no prison's not meant to rehabilitate no it's just like caging animals really is what it is you know versus if you go look at other countries around the world um especially european countries they treat it very differently and and, then there's controversy there like anders brevik uh the uh, norway shooter in my opinion that dude deserved death for what he did and instead he got life in prison and when you look at the prisons the prison system there like They have like their own like apartments and TV and they can cook and this and like it's much more rehabilitating but it's like I think there's a line that you cross as a human being to where you don't deserve that. Your victim didn't get that so why do you deserve that? Why do you deserve a second chance? I think those who commit nonviolent offenses and especially like financial things you know or theft or even robberies I mean there's no violence involved with it like those are the people that really have a shot at rehabilitation most of the time. But those who commit truly violent acts, whether it's mass murder or brutal murders or torture other human beings, there is no way back from that. Think about it, if you were out in society and you got a job, and let's say the the world's different, totally different, where there's a chance, you know, obviously felons are it's very hard to get a job as a felon mm-hmm. in, in the United States. But let's just say the system was different and this felon was deemed rehabilitated and you find out, you know, you're just having lunch in in the break room one day and he's like, "Oh yeah, I, you know, I murdered murdered my girlfriend." And you look up the murder and they did they had a slitter throat or something brutal, you know, something just horrible. How do you feel about that? Like would you be okay would you trust that he's rehabilitated or is that person always a threat i
1: I would definitely keep a safer distance but i think deep down i do think that someone if they had in this hypothetical if they had killed their girlfriend in a brutal way i do think they can come out the other end a changed person um the same way productive
0: member of society i do i do and integrated with like they could go like if they ended up having a kid later in life and they're going to drop their kid off at school like you'd be cool with that? I would do I, you feel like the, they would need to disclose I that think, information or no?
1: I think it's a case by case scenario and I don't want to lump everyone who's ever been convicted of murder into
0: one big pot. Which I think is good cuz there are people who commit murder where the the circumstances were You know, there's all those shows on Netflix about, you know, I am a killer or I forget there's what what it's called exactly where they interview these people that are in prison for murders and they're like they're remorseful and they're like, you know, I was young or I made a mistake and I didn't mean to kill that person or something like that. And and that's where I think that's where it gets difficult because you're like, do they deserve a second chance? You know, it happened so long ago. Can they change and be a productive member of society? And I think that's what's difficult though, is like it would have to be a case-by-case basis yeah. and, and unfortunately the way that society works and our government works is like that just would never be yeah, a plausible it's, solution it's inefficient and yeah. in, like the resources required to to do that and then follow up on that person to make sure that they actually are doing what they say they're doing yeah would just I mean, be impossible really a recidivism rate. Is I know that word because
1: my roommate was a criminal justice major. Oh, really? College, yeah. But yeah, that's a big deal, especially in America. You know, if you're a one time offender and you go to prison for X amount of time, there's a high chance you're going to find your way back there as well. So yeah, I think the system itself isn't worried about rehabilitating people. No, I think change has to come from within, really. And I think it's a very complex journey, and I I can't even begin to understand how. If I were to kill someone, how I would come back from that? But I do think I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that some can,
0: but. Not but if everyone. you think about like how the worlds work for since the beginning of time, that didn't exist. If right. you killed somebody, you're getting killed.
1: Even if you didn't kill somebody, you yes. are just like, "Hey, you." Right.
0: Well, and that's where it gets tricky. Is like because that's the one thing about people the death get accused of things that is, they didn't do.
1: There's some. I know you're pretty pro death penalty i'm a little on the fence because i know historically the death penalty is systemically racist yeah yeah. about all the black men who have been absolutely killed by the system you know so that's why yeah there are plenty of people that don't deserve to be on this planet anymore but it gets tricky when we put our own biases and the system is itself its foundation is broken so
0: yeah yeah well when you get get that deep into it you start (laughs) yeah it's it's hard to ignore the breakdowns because yeah i mean and i'm talking more like before the united states was the country you know like going back to pre guillotine, yeah like back even to like medieval times you know like it was and obviously there was probably plenty of innocent people that were accused of something and you know they didn't go through to make sure that that person actually did what they they said they did but yeah it's just i don't even know like what what to do about the problem because they let people out of prison because prisons are overcrowded, there's no room, and if you exhibit good behavior, and which, it's just like a lot of times people are released because of good behavior. And I'm like, right. good behavior in prison, what does that mean? What does that look like exactly? Because yeah. a and lot of people just be good in prison yeah, because that's fake, how you survive. You can fake good behavior for yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. And we've seen so many serial killers that go to prison before they're ever convicted of, of mass murder, they go to prison. And their model like uh, I believe John Wayne Gacy is a, is a good example of that he went to prison like he should have been Locked up for life so many times prior to actually, you know getting caught that final time But because he was a good Prisoner, you know, he was everybody liked him, you know, you know read the bible to people and like that To the warden the guards whatever deems good behavior And so they give you a good recommendation to the parole board then you get released Well, how do you you know you just let a monster back out and then that monster goes out and so it's like as much as we want to do it Case by case. I just don't see that ever being a possibility So it's like do you run the risk of letting a monster out? That's gonna go do more death and destruction or do you just it is what it is and like if you find yourself in that situation you maybe you shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place you're guilty by association, you know, you hear that growing up of like you hang out with the wrong crowd. You're guilty by association, even though you may not. And same with this particular case, guilty by association.
1: I would agree with you, but the one major thing I have a problem with is that most people who are just guilty by association and you're hanging out with the wrong crowd is usually disenfranchised people. They didn't choose to be there or be a part of some culture. It yeah. was like their that was their way, yeah. and so
0: yeah. And I think if you look at it from the the perspective of our history of systematic racism within criminal justice system i think obviously it's a it changes the way you think about it cuz yeah obviously blacks have been jailed and and you know taken advantage of by the criminal justice system disproportionately i mean that's a known fact so yeah. and, and that's the difficult thing is like i'm talking about this from the, if you know looking at this as if that didn't exist if that wasn't there if you take the the systematic racism out of it and you looked at it just from a You know, if there was this equal playing field from the beginning, then maybe this, this method of criminal justice would work. But that's the issue is that in so many places, it's not fair. The justice system is not fair. Yeah, And yeah, it's, it's difficult. So like, I, when I talk about the death penalty I'm more of referring it to not in like the current state I'm thinking of it more of like universally the death penalty going back to the beginning of time and what did the criminal justice system look like 2,000 years ago or and how it has evolved like if you look at the history going all the way back to um, the early empires Roman Empire British Empire things like that and how they sort of handled that you know it, it's interesting to look at you know those who committed heinous crimes were often not jailed they were just executed and did that lead to less crime and so if you if you think about it now obviously the system would have to be completely overhauled and is that even possible i don't know and will it probably not in the current state so yeah it's it's difficult you know because people make the argument well isn't life in prison worse than just getting death like is it is it worse? in some cases i think yeah absolutely like being isolated in a cell twenty three hours a day, a concrete box, it is torture. It is torture at the same. So then you could be like, well, is the death penalty more humane than keeping these people in prison for their whole life? Yeah, and you know, people like to say death penalty is inhumane. Well, keeping someone in a concrete box where they don't see the daylight, yeah, I where they're developing mental illness and things like that. Right. Like they say,
1: get, like if you're not crazy before solitary confinement,
0: you'll be crazy after. Right, you know? solitary confinement. That's a huge controversy is that humane right so yeah. put anybody in that situation
1: i think the one thing that just really makes my stomach drop is the stories where you hear like this guy was executed for this murder and now 25 years later yeah we realize that that just makes my stomach drop to the point where worth is it worth it if we let's say we take 80 terrible criminals and execute them and they were guilty but there's one innocent guy does that make it all worth it that's the big question for me and I don't think it I don't think it's worth it
0: yeah I see I see just depends on how you view these things and you know how you weigh things out and yeah it's it's difficult though I, I totally see what you're saying because I mean there are situations that this person from day one was like I'm innocent you got the wrong guy and then they end up on death row and then they're eventually executed and they may have never done anything to deserve that and yeah. so can you weigh one human's life to another? Definitely a very it's a tough, topic tricky, that, tricky topic to navigate. Yeah. So, at the same time, I'm like, the amount of people who we know for 100 fact committed these things. Does that you know on the scale where does it weigh? Obviously, I don't think any innocent human should die, but at the same time, I'm like, I feel there are a number that. The world would just be a better, better place and it would help our system, like allowing more space for those who don't deserve the death penalty to be put in prison as opposed to housing all these people that there is no path back to society. There is never a chance they're going to get out of prison. What's the point of keeping them alive at this point? Why? Why do that other than to make them suffer for the rest of their life until they die in prison? yeah so.
1: and i'm i agree with you on that i mean some people yeah like i said they just don't deserve to be here after a while or they have wires that are crossed incorrectly and they're just they'll never come out uh, right right functioning people but yeah i think the problem is that we put the onus on the system to take care of it yeah. and i think the, the sy- system is an inherently the broken thing, up, man. Man.
0: the system's completely fucked And that's the hard part is I think the whole system has to be overhauled. It has to be, like, redone. But what would that look like? Do we have AI take over the criminal justice system where they don't have that systematic bias? Damn. Like, imagine, like, sometimes I think about a future where these decisions that used to be made by humans where personal bias comes into play. Judges, I mean, uh, to, you know, people who work in the prison system. Like, what if one day those people are replaced by AI where the AI doesn't have that? racial bias or whatever any bias whatsoever they're just purely going off of like information that they've they've gathered yeah
1: i wonder how much human compassion plays into being a judge because i when i think about that like ai replacing yeah because there's this book just mercy i think they made it into a movie a while back but one of the judges for this guy his name was literally robert lee the judge oh really and yeah and he was just sentencing black people right left and right. right See, so, yeah, I wonder. Yeah, if we replace that guy with just a totally unbiased judge, I wonder how the outcome could have been different. Right. But then I worry: are we also stripping a human element that we kind of need in the justice system as well?
0: It's a double-edged sword. Right. Right. Would the AI just like enforce the maximum penalty? All the time? Right. Well, yeah. and, that, and that's the thing is, I feel like judges have too much power in most cases where they're they are able to. You know obviously they have the sentencing you know that's like what the judges do is they sentence people yeah and you know the jury finds them guilty or not but then ultimately it's up to the judge to sentence them and so the judge gets to make that determination on how much time they get and you know obviously it's also based on other factors you know whether they get a plea deal or something like that where it's pre-negotiated but when it goes to trial and trial's over you're found guilty then the judge is doing you know panning down the sentence. Do they give the maximum? Do they go in the middle? Do they do, you know, what kind of deal do they give? Them? And then obviously people always have the ability to appeal afterwards, Right? And, yeah. you know. If you do have the possibility of parole, you know, you get a chance to get out early and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I just wonder if, if we eliminated the human aspect of that and gave AI or, you know, if it was a, some type of bot predetermined criteria and so it just based it off of this clear set of data that it goes off of and I think it would be better most likely, especially most places where there has been this history of systematic racism and people, you know, black people or whatever race is getting, you know, consistently taken advantage of that if that would fix that issue. And sometimes I think maybe it would, but then on the other hand, you know, something is programming these bots too so would there would that still exist would they program that into the bot like, right so or you know do you have the the racial thing is just a tough one because it's like there there's not a simple simple solution if, i not. mean if
1: we could weed out racism and classism in the justice system i would be much more on board with capital punishment
0: it would get closer to being fair yeah which is what the justice system it's claims it to does, be. Yeah, right? right this fair you know innocent until proven guilty and you know it's this whole you know you get to present the evidence and let a jury and, and even the jury process is a whole mess but oh yeah but anyways we could go on and on all day <laughs> about the criminal justice system but I think it's interesting conversation especially with the the this, this story and the story in the Carney Colts and and just seeing you know obviously Jimmy got exactly what he deserved Keith I feel. I feel didn't get as much time as he probably should have, and who knows what they're out there. You know, hopefully they're out doing good things for society and have completely changed their ways. And you know, maybe Satanism was just this phase for them growing up. Which it seems ultimately like. Do you feel that they were really about giving their life to Satan? Do you really feel that this was like in their heart of hearts? They're like, I I am okay with going to hell and being you know this tool for the devil and. I will do whatever the devil wants to me.
1: It's definitely like a rebellion thing for sure. Yeah. And I think you kind of grow out of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like definitely as you get older too, as you get older and have more life experiences, like when you're young like that, it's so easy to get pulled down a path. I feel like and just get sucked in to where you're like, you know, this is all I know. This is all I care about. But then as you get old, you definitely get older and wiser. Like I I feel like I've gotten older and wiser as you experience more life. And
1: Show me a seventy-year-old Satanist, and I
0: might think differently about this. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they exist, but in a totally different capacity of like yeah, you know, it's just like you probably know, less anger, right? And probably in the traditional sense of Satanism, where it's like yeah. you know, or the Satanic Temple or something like they're an atheist and you know right. they don't believe in any deities and yeah, sort of that for sense. Sure. They use Satanism as their you know sort of t- title or class or something, just like any other religion, versus twisting it. applying it in a totally different sense of like I am this tool for the devil I sell my soul to the devil and I'll do all these heinous acts yeah and it's interesting too. like we a lot of these cases we covered happened during the satanic panic because I'm like there have been some Satanism cases more recent but it's I feel like it's more rare that you see that happen I think the
1: irony of the satanic panic was that because it was covered so much in the media
0: it backfired and inspired right. yeah. even more kids to be a part of it oh yeah know? well it's like oh the, you know these guys are getting all this attention negative attention and it's like I want to be a part of that right and, yep. you know, when you bring something to light more people are tend to join it as opposed to if it's kind of stays behind the scenes and okay. yeah I think you're I think you're completely right I think it was because it was getting blown up people were like I want to be a part of that you know because yeah. I mean everybody wants what they can't have they, you know this this I feel like having a rebellious sense is like Kind of programmed in human nature to some extent Like we're all kind of rebellious to some extent like we all don't want to be told what to do we want to or we want to go against whatever status quo is in some way and it's different for everybody but i feel like we all as human beings struggle with that or deal with um rebellion at some point in your life and it can be applied in so many different yeah. ways but especially when a gajillion hormones are
1: running through your body right that's yeah it's like exactly that's like of course right I, right a lot of thoughts and ideas are just rushing through my head you know right
0: right or you know somebody does you wrong or something does you wrong and you know it's a way to hit back right it's a right. way to kind of be like stick it to the man sort, sort of thing so yeah. yeah no this this one was definitely really interesting so i want to know what your thoughts are on the Carney cult have you heard of this before Do you think that they got appropriate punishments for what they did but with that being said i'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there thanks for joining us for another episode of lights out and we will see you next week with another dark episode until then lights out everybody